I know that it's just a music video, but I love that music video. We've uh, we've shown it before, but it is a is a it's a song that was written from the perspective of the person whose story I want to tell you this morning. Um, and I thought maybe that would give you uh, sort of a coat hook in your brain to hang some visuals on uh, as as the woman in that story lived through a situation where everything seemed like a disaster, but God had something bigger, bigger and better planned. You ever live through something like that? My, uh, one of my favorite stories of that in my family, my grandparents, Harold and Iris Maxwell, were married clear back in 1940. Back when the Great Depression had just ended, but out in this part of the world, nobody knew it had ended, right? And uh, they, they were newlyweds. My granddad was a notoriously picky eater. And my grandma, was, she was determined to become the kind of cook that even granddad would approve of. She was a fantastic cook, by the way. Don't tell my mom I said this, but Grandma Maxwell's my favorite cook ever. Uh, But that first winter they were married, she was a very inexperienced one. Granddad would eat chili. And so she decided that first winter, I'm going to make chili. And while I'm doing it, I'm going to make a big batch of chili. And so she got out the beans first. And in those days, all she had was dry beans. And so she poured out enough dry beans. It looked like a lot, but she, you know, she wanted to make a big batch of chili and she didn't realize or understand that when you soak dry beans, they expand. And if they're good and dry, they can expand three to five times their original size. So she started with a bowl of beans and they expanded their way out of that bowl and she put them in two bowls. And then they expanded their way out of those two bowls as well. And there she had four bowls uh, of beans. And this is 1940. They were poor by even 1940 standards. There was no such thing as throwing away good food. And so she just decided, and maybe not the best decision of her life, just she's just going to make chili around these beans. This is how many beans she has. And so she just kept adding sauce and tomatoes and all this stuff. And in the end, she wound up with a small wash tub of chili. Uh, And she, by the time she had everything open and she had used all these ingredients, she was so embarrassed, but she didn't want to waste it, so she made it. She she was embarrassed. My granddad loved to tell this story, by the way. And, you know, they there was just two of them. They ate what they could. What are they, you know, what are they gonna do with this? Granddad took it up in the attic. He put it by the window in the attic. It was really cold that winter. It froze solid. And for the rest of that winter, when they either needed a quick meal or finally had another hankering for chili, my granddad would take the hatchet and go up into the attic and hack off a chili burg and bring his chili cube down and put it in the kitchen they thawed out and eat chili. They they loved it that winter long. They told that story for decades. And what, what started out seeming like an embarrassing, humiliating disaster for her and a waste of food wound up being something they enjoyed all that winter. They, they were trendsetters. Nobody made food ahead of time and froze it. You know why? They didn't have freezers. That's why. Uh, they were way ahead of the game. If you pay attention in life, we can figure out how to take, you know, take lemons and make lemonade sometimes, right? 
You've heard the story of the guy who invented post-it notes by accident. Have you heard that? He, was, he set out to make a really super strong adhesive, like a super glue type of thing, and he failed. Then somebody figured out, but he had invented this low-tack adhesive that would stay sticky, and you could reposition these little pieces of paper. So it was a failure for him that wound up being great. How about Plato? Do you know, you know what Plato was invented for? Plato was invented as a wallpaper cleaner. True story. Uh, and the company was on the verge of bankruptcy before somebody realized, you know, kids like to play with this stuff. And they remarketed the same wallpaper cleaner in different cans, and it has been being ground into the carpets of moms around the world ever since. That kind of stuff happens all the time. But isn't it possible, though, if Post-it Notes and Play-Doh and my grandmother's chili recipe, stuff that started out as an abysmal failure and a painful situation, if people can figure out how to take a bad situation, a painful situation, a broke situation like that, and people can turn that into something awesome, doesn't it just make sense that if God is God, that when we are going through something way worse, dark, painful, lonely, sad. Doesn't it just make sense that that God can take situations like that? Even though the situation may not be anything we would ever pick or ever desire or look for, that he could take something like that and orchestrate and see and find ways to turn that into something that years later, maybe if it's not even in this lifetime, that you or I would be able to look back on and say to God, oh, that's what you were doing. You were in control the whole time. You cared for me the whole time. You were good the whole time. You could redeem even a terrible, dark situation like that. The story I want to share with you this morning is one little glimpse, one little like page in a bigger story that was the best time God ever did that. Took something dark seeming, something that seemed terrible, irredeemable, tragic, and turned it into the best day, the best event in all of history. I want to tell you the story of one of Jesus' followers... Um, not one of the 12. Uh, her name was Mary. We know her as Mary Magdalene. She was, her name was Mary. She was from a town called Magdala. And so we know her as Mary Magdalene or Magdalene. Uh, she was a very devoted follower of Jesus, had, had followed her for, for a long time through his ministry. And just like the rest of the disciples, she was shocked and crushed by what happened on Good Friday, by the, the death, the, the arrest, the beating, the humiliation of Jesus. Even though Jesus predicted everything that happened to him ahead of time. 
multiple occasions in the Gospels, we read of Jesus saying to his disciples, all right, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. My enemies are going to arrest me. They're going to beat the living tar out of me. They're going to humiliate me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. He predicted that very clearly. You ever read the Gospels and wonder why you get to Easter Sunday morning and nobody's at the tomb like, here comes the good part, right? He's coming out. There's nobody there waiting on the resurrection. You ever wonder why? Here's why. Because what happened is not what they wanted to happen and not what they planned on happening. The disciples, here's what they wanted. They knew, they became convinced Jesus was the Messiah, which is a king of Israel that was promised in the Old Testament. They wanted him to start his kingdom right then, kick the Romans out, and give them nice, highfalutin jobs in his administration. That's what they wanted, because that's what they wanted, that's what they expected. And then when what they wanted and what they expected didn't happen, when they saw him get arrested, beaten, crucified, killed, and buried, they had felt like God had abandoned them. That, that, that Jesus wasn't as strong as they thought he was. They, again, they, do what they, did, they were doing what we do a lot. We were holding God responsible for breaking promises he never made to begin with. Now, on that first Easter Sunday morning, um, as we saw in the video, there's a few inaccuracies from the biblical record in there, but some women went to the tomb first, hoping to give Jesus' body a more respectful burial. They found the, the stone rolled away from the tomb. They took off and ran back to get the disciples to tell her, to tell the disciples, hey, that the tomb is open. Peter and John run to the tomb. Uh, they go inside, and sure enough, there's no body there. They leave in confusion. And that's where we pick up our story, because Mary Magdalene was left there alone. The doorway to an empty tomb, crushed, hurt, sad, confused. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. It comes in John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 11 through 18 this morning. This is the New American Standard Bible. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means my dear teacher, or something like that. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So our, our little glimpse of the bigger resurrection story uh, starts in verse 11. There's Mary Magdalene. She's weeping. She's alone. She is someone who helped place Jesus' body, dead body, in that tomb. So she knows she's in the right place. And through her tears, she bends down to look into the tomb, maybe for the first time we don't, that she looked in there, maybe. And, and verse 12 tells us that she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Now, it's debatable whether or not Mary knew these were angels. If you read Mark's gospel, it kind of seems like she maybe thought these were uh, young men in really, really clean clothes, honestly. But the narrator tells us they were angels. And I don't know if this is what we're supposed to think about when we picture the, the, the arrangement of these two angels, one at the head, one at the foot. But this reminds me of a very important piece of furniture from the Bible. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. You know the Ark of the Covenant because it's what Indiana Jones was looking for in his first movie, right? And the Ark of the Covenant um, is an Old Testament piece of furniture. It was a traveling, like, trunk. Inside were the tablets of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and some manna and... The lid of the trunk was decorated. This is one artist's rendering. We really don't know exactly how it looked. But it had an angel, one at the head and one at the foot. And on the top of that, that lid was called the mercy seat. When that baby was parked in the, the tabernacle and in the temple, that was like God's chair. It's where the, the, the presence of God sat. And... I don't think it's an accident. I don't know if that's what we're really supposed to think about when we hear uh, of these two angels, one at the head and one at the foot, where, where Jesus had been setting. But here's what I do think we are supposed to sort of understand from this scene right here, these two verses. And that's this. The time for men, for people to be in control of what happened to Jesus is over. For a very short period of time, Jesus allowed his enemies to be in control of what happened to him. For a very brief time. But Jesus was allowing it even that, that whole time. It was, it was for a limited time only that people could control Jesus. And only because he allowed it. We see that Jesus was not a helpless victim. We see that several times in the Gospels. I'll show you two this morning. If you remember the story of Jesus when he was arrested, his friend Judas tells the enemies where Jesus is at. And they come to arrest him. And Peter, because he's Peter, he decides we're not going down like this. right? And he pulls out, it's called a sword. We would probably call it a dagger. And he starts swinging this thing at the soldiers because he's not going to let them take, you'll never take us alive, copper, type of thing, right? And Jesus tells Peter, whoa, 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 whoa. Put that smoke wagon back in the holster there, cowboy. And then, that's a paraphrase. That's not really what it's in there. And then Jesus says this to Peter at the top of the screen there. He says, do you think that I cannot call on my father? And then he wouldn't send me more than 12 legions of angels right now. 
What he was telling Peter is, Peter, if I, didn't, if I wasn't allowing this to happen, do you think I would need you and your pointy metal stick to protect me? Earlier in the Gospel of John, earlier in his ministry, John tells us Jesus said this, announced this publicly before any of this went down. Jesus announced, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. See, Jesus had allowed other people, because he knew sin had to be paid for. And either you would have to pay for your sin, or he would have to pay for your sin. He chose, you know, I say this all the time. God was like, somebody had to die. Somebody has to die for your sin. And Jesus said, I choose me. And so Jesus placed himself voluntarily, temporarily under the authority of people. And his enemies determined what happened to him. And it wasn't pretty. But the angels in that tomb are letting us know, as we read this story, the time for people to be in control of Jesus is over. It's over. And so as Mary is bending down, she's still crying, she's looking at these two beings on either side of of where Jesus' body had been laying, but is not there anymore. They ask Mary the first of two questions that I think are pretty important still today. First, they just ask her, why are you weeping? Woman, why are you weeping? First, I want you to know that uh, the word woman at the beginning of that is a lot more polite in their culture and in that language than it sounds like today. Guys, there, there is no good way to start a sentence with the word woman and sound polite and gentle. Okay, So don't try this and tell your wife it's in the Bible. Right? Woman, where you been? Right? It's in the Bible, I can say that. No, no you can't. This is, it's actually, it's a tender address. Jesus, you you remember, he addressed his mama this way one time. Um, But coming from these angels, even though they're being polite, they're being gentle, this is a bit of a rebuke from these angels. They say, why are you crying? With the... The idea being, they see, they see this event from God's perspective. They know this is the greatest day in the history of human beings since the day they were created. Because they understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has, has done for people something miraculous. It's allowed for their salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. So they ask her, like, why are you crying? And we can tell from Mary's response Mary's got the wrong problem in her mind and then therefore she's looking for a bad solution because she's identified the wrong problem. Mary says, well, here's, I think Mary's a little bit incredulous. I think if she really shared her heart, she would, it would go something like this. Why am I crying? What are you, dense? Didn't you, don't you know what's gone on here since Friday? Here's why I'm crying. The man I thought was Messiah got arrested by his enemies. They treated him bad, bad, bad. They humiliated and beat him. 
and killed him. And I buried him right here in this tomb. And now, to make matters worse, to throw salt in the wound, they've taken his body away. They separated me from him in life. Now they've separated me from him in death. That's, that's why I'm crying. You notice who Mary thinks is responsible for Jesus being gone. They. They have taken my Lord away. People are still in control of what happens to Jesus. That's where she's wrong. Because they're powerless before Jesus. The time for people to be in control of Jesus is over. And while Mary is still speaking, I think she becomes aware that someone has come up behind her. And she turns around to find someone she mistakes for for the groundskeeper, I want to call him. I know our Bibles say gardener, but she wasn't thinking of somebody who plants flowers or cucumbers or stuff like that. Okay, this is, here's what I think she probably believes. Probably she believes the authorities who hate Jesus so much they wanted to crucify him have found out that she buried him in a rich man's grave and they're not happy about it. Probably, she probably thinks they've asked the groundskeeper to come get his body and go throw him in the open pit with the rest of the common criminals' bodies. So, Jesus, who she doesn't know is Jesus, asks her, she, he repeats the angel's question and asks a follow-up question. It goes like this, she, Woman, why are you weeping? What's wrong? And then, who are you looking for? We can think of, of this question this way. What's, what's the matter? And what is it you are looking for that you think will fix what's the matter? And her answer seems obvious to her. My problem is I can't find the dead body of my friend. You know what would fix it? If you took him away and you would just tell me where his body is, that would fix my problem. My problem is I can't find dead Jesus the solution would be if you would tell me where to find dead Jesus. That would fix my problem. You know, in, in, in Mary, we see a pattern that gets repeated over and over in the Gospels. When, when followers of Jesus meet the risen Jesus, pretty much every time the same thing happens. At first, they don't know who they're talking to, who they're looking at. They don't recognize him. Usually. Sometimes we're even told Jesus keeps them from recognizing him for his own reasons. And I don't know why she doesn't recognize him, but she, she doesn't recognize Jesus. Then, almost always, Jesus does something to make his disciples recognize him. And then they sort of freak out in a positive way. right? Maybe they call him God, or they jump out of a boat and swim to shore. Or, in, in Mary's case, Jesus speaks to her. You know, Jesus said in John, my sheep hear my voice and they recognize me. That's what happens here. Jesus speaks her name, Mary, and she instantly recognizes Jesus for who he is. She turns around and, and says this word that doesn't mean anything to us, Rabboni. The reason that one gets transliterated or spelled out like it originally sounds is so the original audience would know is that word. In, in uh, first century and before uh, the Jewish world, that, 
That was the term for someone's teacher that was so respectful. The Jewish writings tell us nobody could be addressed face-to-face by that term. Some people were written that they were a really good, respected teacher. They, they had that term written about them, but you couldn't say it to their face. Why? I have no idea. That's just the way it was. But this is what Mary says to him. This is, and it's possessive. This is like my really special teacher is what she calls it. And, and this is a really just tender moment of recognition between, between Mary and Jesus. But I want you to see that Mary still doesn't understand all that God has been doing with this situation that she was convinced was terrible and heart-wrenching and a complete disaster. Because immediately, well, first, Mary grabs a hold of Jesus because she's still trying to fix what she thinks is her problem. Jesus, Mary apparently grabs hold of Jesus. Um, maybe she was you know, on her knees because the, the door was low, and maybe she's grabbing a hold of his legs. Maybe she's just got him in a bear hug, whatever it is. I don't know. But she's grabbing a hold of him because Jesus replies to her. Uh, this translation says, do not touch me, but it's a continual thing. Probably what Jesus is saying is basically, you have to let go. Don't keep on grabbing me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to my Father. That's the first reason. Now, Jesus is not saying necessarily, I haven't seen the Father yet. I haven't ascended into paradise like I promised the, uh, the thief on the cross or the criminal on the cross I would. Here's what Jesus is saying. You can let go because I'm going to be around for a bit. I, I am not going to ascend permanently into heaven quite Yeah, Jesus knows what Mary thinks her real problem is. What's Mary think her real problem is that morning? She's separated physically from Jesus. You see how she's trying to fix what she thinks is her problem? Here's Mary that morning. I let you go once, and I couldn't find you. And now I'm never letting go again. Her problem's been fixed. There really is a God. He really is in control. He saw my problem. I couldn't see and touch Jesus anymore. He's fixed that problem. Hallelujah, the end. Except look what Jesus says immediately to her. You've got to let go and go away. He says, I want you to go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God. And your God. There is so much awesome in that verse that I probably should do the whole Easter sermon on that verse. This is a fantastic verse of Scripture. Do you know this is the first time Jesus calls his disciples his bros, his brothers? And he says, And I'm going to my father who is, guess what now? He's your father too. You want to know what the cross of Jesus Christ does? It takes people who should be enemies of God, makes them brothers of Jesus Christ and sisters of Jesus Christ, siblings of the Son of God, which makes you a child of the Father. That's what the cross does. It's so, Jesus so absorbs the punishment our sins deserve that there's no more enmity between the Father and a person who places their faith in what Jesus did. That There's no more enmity, condemnation, punishment left. And that's when we get to be adopted by the God of the universe. 
And so Jesus says to Mary while she's holding, holding on to him, she's doing this, he's doing this number probably like, yeah, like, come on. A little personal space, Mary. We've talked about this. You have to let go and go away because you have a, a special message to deliver. But do you see how that's not what Mary wanted that morning? She just wanted to be in physical proximity with Jesus and never have that broken. And Jesus immediately gives her a job she didn't want and basically gives, lets her current problem continue from a different perspective. You are going to be separate from me physically, Mary, but you should have a different perspective of that separation. I'm going to let your problem continue, but I'm going to give you a different perspective because Mary should know her main problem has been solved. Her main problem is separation from God. And because now she can be a, a sister, a sibling of Jesus Christ, and a daughter of the God of the universe, her ultimate problem has been fixed forever. And, and that's a message that needs to be shared. Now, before we quit here this morning, I want to ask you, and I'm not asking the person beside you or the person you rode here with or the person you were hoping would show up today. I'm asking you to answer the two questions that Jesus asked of Mary. First, he asked her, woman, why are you weeping? I'll ask you this way, because I don't know what issues you walked in here with today. I don't know what hurts you have, but I, but I just want you to answer this question. What is, what's bothering you in your life? What makes you hurt, sad, lonely, stressed out, confused, disappointed, angry? What is that thing? You got something? Now let me ask you Jesus' follow-up question. What is it you are pursuing? What is it you're looking for? Who are you looking for? What is it you are pursuing that you think if you could just get that, it would fix your problem? What is it? You know what your main problem, what, what's wrong, what bothers you. What is it that you're chasing that you think would fix that problem? Maybe you pray about this. God, if you would give me this, I wouldn't feel like that. If you would do this for me, I wouldn't have that problem. I want you to consider the possibility that God could be in control and good and love you more than you could ever know and have an answer for you like he had for Mary that, that morning where he didn't fix the problem she wanted him to fix. She gave him a glimpse that someday it would be fixed. But asked her to continue on in her problem with a different perspective. And there's a few things I want you to know this Easter morning. First, I just want you to know Jesus, when he died on the cross, he did that for you to serve the penalty your sins deserve. And he asked if you would believe in him 
that you would not know death even though you die. You would have eternal life. It's the gospel. But I also want you to know this. The time for people to be in control of Jesus is still over. The bad guys don't get to control Jesus anymore, but the good guys don't get to control Jesus either. And sometimes we try to treat Jesus like Mary Magdalene treated Jesus. We try to treat God like, if you love me, you'll let me stay right here. You'll do what I want, like Aladdin's lamp. Right? And I tell you my wishes, and if you love me, and if you're good, you'll give me, you'll fix this. Listen. That morning at the empty tomb, Mary could not control Jesus. She could either, she, all she could do is recognize him for who he was, the risen Savior of the world. And then her only choice was, do I obey him or do I hold him accountable for promises he never made me? <laughs> and see, that's us. Have you recognized Jesus for who he is? Has he, is he your savior? Did he die for you? Did he walk out of that tomb alive? If he did, then we all have the same exact choice. I can accept him and decide to obey and follow even though he may not do it the way I would want. And then we have to remind ourselves, because he's God, he has the power and the ability to redeem all situations. He will walk through us, walk through with us whatever dark, hard, scary thing we're walking through. Someday he will he will redeem that so we will see that it was good. Even though it is not what we would want. So this morning as we close, I just ask you consider have I Have I accepted that Jesus is who he claimed to be? The Christ executed on a cross for my sin, rose again to prove victory over that death and over my sin. If you have, and I would just ask you to consider whether or not you are just walking with him, allowing him to to be the Lord, your boss, walking in obedience. Consider giving your whole life to the one who died for him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the cross, for the empty tomb, and for your power over death. Thank you that you serve the penalty our sins deserved. And by simple faith, that becomes effective for us. Simply by believing in the Lord Jesus, we have no more sin on our account. But Lord, then you meet us at the empty tomb and ask us to do stuff we'd just as soon not do. We have other things we would rather have you do. So God, I pray for my family and friends here this morning. You would impress on our hearts what steps of obedience you would have us take. That we might 
stop trying to control you because the time for people to control Jesus is over. We would accept you for who you are, let you lead our lives, and watch what you will do with our scary and dark and painful situations. And I thank you that one day when we are with you, we will look back and see that you truly have redeemed all things and made all things new. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being crucified for my sin. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.